Hello and welcome to Bad Apple. I'm Riley. And I'm Helen. And today we will be covering the unsolved case of the murders of Harvey and Jeanette Crewe. There has been a conviction in this case, but it's still unsolved. Which might mean mm. that the conviction was wrongful. Yeah. No spoilers, but yeah. spoilers. Spoilers. It was wrongful, but that's a lot of juicy tea. Mm. There's a lot of other things that went into it. Yeah. Why are you guys always wrongly convicting people? This is the second one. Sorry. We had David Bain, now this. You're so suspicious. We're not only suspicious, we are convinced, clearly, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's meant to be, you've got to be beyond reasonable doubt. You all aren't having any reasonable doubt. What's that? We don't <laughs> doubt reasonably. Crazy. My theory, and I was thinking about this while we were reviewing the script, mm-hmm. is that we're a bit out of our depth every time something like this happens in New Zealand. We're too nice over there. Like, shit like this doesn't go down very often. And it's not expected, you know? That does make sense. So maybe people are panicking to convict someone. Yeah, right. Because it's so bad. They're like, oh, shit, like, yeah. what do we do about it? You and want rush. answers. You want... Yeah, I see. That's my only theory. Mm-hmm. Um, this and David Bain, which we have covered, kind of go hand in hand. In fact, I think I was like, you can do this one or this one when I was telling you Mm. and we went with David Bain and now we've come back around to this one. Right. You remember? I think so. (laughs) That was a long time ago now. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Maybe we should just jump on in. Yeah, go ahead. Let's go. On the 22nd of June, 1970, Leonard Demler received a phone call from Mr. Priest, who was the neighbour of his 30-year-old daughter, Jeanette Crewe asking if Demler could go and check on her. Mr. Priest had been trying to contact Jeanette and her husband, 28-year-old Harvey, via telephone for a number of days and no one had been picking up. It was around 2.30pm when Demler arrived at the crew property, but Harvey and Jeanette were nowhere to be seen. On entering the house, he discovered a significant amount of blood. There was blood on the walls, the lounge chair where Harvey usually sat, on the front steps the kitchen floor, cupboard doors, the hot water tap and two saucepans, and a long drag mark on the carpet in the living room. Harvey and Jeanette's 18-month-old daughter Rochelle was found screaming in her cot, but Demler didn't attend to her straight away. Instead, he left Rochelle in the cot and drove to his own house, where he called a transport company to cancel a stock transfer, saying Harvey was not home. On his way back to the crew property, He went past the priests and asked if Mr. Priest would accompany him back to the house to look for Harvey and Jeanette. Rochelle was taken to the Priest family home where she was looked after by Mrs. Priest until a nurse came to the house to check on her. I guess if you guys think this behaviour sounds strange, so do we. Yeah. Not looking after the baby. (laughs) No, like cancelling the stock. Oh, right. Going to Mr. Priest's house being like, can you look for um? Yeah, this whole time. This whole time the baby's in the cot. Yeah, and there was blood everywhere. I just think it's strange. It is strange. Yeah. Police arrived at the crew house at 4pm, 90 minutes after Demler initially discovered the scene, and commenced the investigation, which is described as being intense, thorough, and painstaking. 
Police began interviewing witnesses to try and ascertain when these events could have taken place. Mrs Priest told police that while in bed on the evening of Wednesday the 17th of June, she heard three gunshots coming from the direction of the crew home. The exact time she heard the shots is unknown. She usually went to bed around 9.30pm, but that evening it was earlier because she was tired from a ball she attended the night before. Living it up. Yeah. A ball. A ball. A country ball. Yeah. Cute. Probably a BNS. Actually, she was married. Would have What's been that? a BNS. Oh, no. You don't know. It's a, uh, a bachelor's and spinster's ball. It's, they're gross. They're so gross. Okay. We do them out in the country. It's just all, everyone that's single goes to these parties and. Are you a spinster? And I would be a spinster, yeah, and the men would be a bachelor. Yeah, spinster. What a gross name. My God. Yeah. The the old B&S ball. She mentioned the shots to her husband at 11pm when he came to bed. She cannot be more certain, but has said that it was likely not before 8.30, so we can assume that the shots were fired at some point between 8.30 and 11pm on the 17th of June. The priests said they called multiple times on the afternoon of Thursday the 18th, all of which went unanswered. This, combined with milk, bread and newspaper deliveries on the morning of June 18th, which had not been collected, gave police confidence that Harvey and Jeanette were gone from the house on the night of June 17th. Interestingly, a woman and an unknown vehicle were seen on the crew property on the morning of Friday the 19th of June. She was seen by Bruce Roddick, who was a young man who lived in the area with his parents, and assisted a farmer called Mr Chitty on Friday mornings with feeding stock and other odd jobs. Mr Chitty's property neighboured the crews, and on the morning of June 19th, Bruce was feeding cattle in a paddock from which you could see the crew's house. Bruce saw a woman standing in front of the house and a car on the property. He didn't know the crews personally and assumed that the woman was Mrs Crew. He went to the police and described the woman and the car to the best of his ability. When he was shown a picture of Jeanette, he said that the woman looked similar and her hair was the same length but was lighter than Jeanette's. On October 30th, 1970, Bruce attended a lineup of nine women, but he was unable to make a positive identification. The woman has never been identified, but put a pin in this. Back to the crime scene, throughout the house there were many bloodstains found. A thorough analysis of these stains revealed a small amount of brain tissue on the arm of the chairs in the lounge, which led police to believe that they were looking for a body, not a missing person. At this stage of the investigation, the search, Demler became the leading suspect. Police believed he was involved for a number of reasons. His failure to immediately raise the alarm, blood which matched Jeanette's blood type on his car seat, a scratch on his neck, an unregistered twenty-two rifle that he had access to, and the guilty knowledge that Rochelle didn't need immediate assistance. This point about Rochelle's condition is very important. Rochelle's condition at the time she was discovered has produced different medical opinions. Remember, she was 18 months old, or if you're not one of those mothers who keep Doing labeling months. babies He's as months. 46 months old. <laughs> she was year and a half. Year and a half. Rochelle had suffered from some tissue loss, and her eyes were sunken and bloodshot, and her lips were extremely dry. There was very limited literature on fluid retention in infants who are unattended. But medical opinion was that she had ingested little to nothing in the 48 hours before 2.30pm on June 22nd, and at the most that she had had nothing in 72 hours. 
This indicated that she was last fed at some point between 2.30 on the 19th of June and 2.30 p.m. on the 20th, at least two days after her parents were killed. The condition of Rochelle's nappies were also consistent with her being unchanged for a similar amount of time. Doctors have varied in opinion as to how long an otherwise healthy child could survive without food or water. In 2013, a report from a professor of pediatrics at Brown University in the U.S. indicated what kind of state an infant would be in if left without food or water for five days. It said they would be lethargic, have an odor to the breath caused by ketosis, have a dry mouth and parched, cracked lips. Their breathing would be rapid and deep, and their pulse would be rapid too. They wouldn't be able to produce tears when they cry, their skin would be doughy and odd, and their bedding would be stained with dry urine. While some of these things were true of Rochelle's condition, she was not in so poor a state that she required urgent medical intervention in order to survive. Along with leaving an unwell Rochelle in her cot, Demler's behaviour during the search didn't do him any favours and continued to raise police suspicions. While he attended the police searches of the area surrounding the farm, he merely shadowed the search group mysteriously on horseback and didn't assist them. Stylish. Yeah. How moody. Yeah, a farm man on horse. With his hat on, just looking. And it's like, doo 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 You know, like the cowboy music. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't a very good <laughs> impersonation. Yeah, I, I've got it now. Like, just backlit by the sun. Like a silhouette. A silhouette. I'm thinking like a really cool colour palette as He's well. He's chewing on a piece of straw. <laughs> Detective Inspector Bruce Hutton was quick to hone in on Demler and was almost obsessed with proving Demler was the killer. And Bruce thought he had a good theory too. In 1961, nine years before the murders, Demler was in serious financial difficulty after he had been fined £10,000 for tax evasion and had to sell half of his farm to his wife, May, who was independently wealthy. Yes, girl. In the 60s. Yeah, she was getting her money getting her coin. She had that dowry, honey. Soon after, May amended her will to vest her interest in the farm solely with Jeanette, cutting her other daughter Heather out of the will after she had married a divorcee. We can hypothesize that perhaps Demler wasn't feeling too good about the whole thing. He has to sell half his farm to his wife, who then goes and cuts one of his daughters out of the will. Was this enough motive to kill Jeanette in order to regain sole ownership of the property? Apparently, Jeanette had registered her vested interest in the property on the 16th of June 1970, the day before she went missing, and in the same week, Demler had amended his will, removing Jeanette, or at least significantly reducing her capacity as a beneficiary. Is it saying something that his wife didn't leave the property to him? You know? Yeah. What a roast. She said, get wrecked. She said, clearly you're not good with money. Yeah. Yeah. Giving it to my daughter. Fair enough. Unless he had the interest in remainder, which is like a whole property law thing. Let's not go into it. Okay. As in it maybe went to him quickly and then he died and then she got it. The daughter got it. Don't worry. Don't worry. I won't. I will not worry. Do not concern yourself. During the search, Demler had suggested to police that Jeanette and Harvey would be found in the water. And on the 16th of August 1970, he was proven right. Almost one month after Harvey and Jeanette were last seen, Jeanette's body was found wrapped in a duvet and bound with copper wire in the Waikato River, 
A month later again, on the 16th of September, Harvey's body was found upstream. However, police attention was quickly diverted away from Demler when a car axle that had been weighing down Harvey's body was linked to a neighbouring farmer, Arthur Thomas. The circumstantial evidence against Demler fell away as investigators began to build their case against Thomas. Fell away. It just fell away. It just became circumstantial, as it always had been. And it wasn't as important as these direct links we were getting with Thomas. You know what other circumstance could have been equally as probable? Mm -hmm. He took the axle from Thomas's property. On his way, he was like, oh, look, something away. Oh, great. Anyone could have taken it from Thomas. Yes. Including Demler. More evidence surfaced, which again pointed investigators away from Demler, including Jeanette's injuries. Prior to being fatally shot, she had been brutally assaulted with a blunt instrument and had broken facial bones. Lead investigators also believed that she was raped, making it unlikely that her father was the perpetrator. Fifteen bullet fragments were recovered from Jeanette's skull. The base of the bullet remained intact, which revealed a number eight embossed on the bottom of the bullet. I think they usually call that the manufacturer's mark, mm. and it helps so you can like tell when it was made and what kind of bullet it is. Fair enough. Yeah. Once the cause of death for both Harvey and Jeanette was established as a gunshot from a twenty-two rifle, police were looking for the gun. Given the area in which the crews lived, which was somewhat agricultural, like farmland, most people in the area owned a twenty-two. They collected 64 guns from the Pukekawa area, just 3% of the registered weapons in the area. Of the 64, there were two that could not be eliminated as the possible murder weapon. One of these belonged to Arthur Thomas. Despite the gun being part of an ongoing investigation, it was returned to Thomas on the 8th of September, 1970. On the 13th of October, Detective Johnston went to the Thomas farm and picked up a box of twenty-two ammunition, which he didn't count at the time. Might have been important to do that, you think? Mm. You never know where those bullets might end up. He also searched a dump on the farm for parts of the axle which was found with Harvey, but didn't find anything. So all he did was pick up a box of ammunition. Yeah. Good work. Good policing. <laughs> That same night, police staged a reenactment of the way Mr. Crewe may have been shot, which proposed that the murderer was standing outside in the garden, pointing the gun through some louver windows and into the house. They say that on the night, Jeanette fed Rochelle and put her to bed, and then served dinner for her and Harvey, which was flounder, potatoes, and peas. After dinner, Harvey moved to sit in his armchair, and Jeanette sat on the sofa on his left, to continue knitting a jersey for her husband. It's then that Harvey was shot first from behind, either from someone in the kitchen or just outside an open louver window. Can you tell me what a louver window looks like? Okay, you know those windows and it might be like four panes of glass mm -hmm. and you can rotate them like to be vertical or oh, horizontal? yeah. Yeah, those. That's such a bathroom mood. Yeah. That one in the lounge? Yeah, I think, they, I think they were very common in the 70s. Fair enough. The 60s and the 70s. He was shot in the left side of his head just above the ear and died instantly. Police suspect that Jeanette would have been screaming or shouting as the killer advanced into the house, before hitting Jeanette across the face, causing her to fall and hit her head on the corner of the fireplace, knocking her unconscious. The killer then shot her from close range on the right side of the head, 
Their bodies were dragged out the front door, leaving a likely distressed Rochelle in her cot, just metres from the door. Two days after this reenactment, Detective Johnston returned to the Thomas farm and searched all three dumps on the farm. He found two stub axles, which had broken welds that lined up with the axle found with Harvey. And he found some copper wire, which was analysed against the wire found on Jeanette and found to be a match. It's copper wire. Yeah, I said this in the shark arm case where they found rope that apparently could match the one found around the wrist Mm. that was coughed up by the shark. And I was like, it's rope. Yeah, this is wire. Yeah. Yeah. But they matched it, seemingly. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if they matched it. I think it was just more likely than not to be a match. Yeah. Yeah. And I likened it again in that episode to printer paper. Mm. It's... Probably the same type of printer paper. Probably. On the 27th of October, the crew house was searched for the third time, which saw investigators focusing on the garden following the reconstruction of events and where they thought the murderer had been standing. A spent twenty-two cartridge was found in the garden within two hours of their search that day, despite nothing being found in the garden in the previous two searches of the area. By the way, this search is four months after the initial event. Mm. Long time. That is a long time. This cartridge had the letters ICI imprinted on the case. Both fatal bullets recovered from Jeanette and Harvey were imprinted with the number 8. On the 11th of November, Arthur Thomas was arrested and charged with the murders of Harvey and Jeanette crew. They really just... They just arrested him. They just said... Yeah. We've got you, buddy. I love how, like, everything I said leading up to that sentence doesn't actually, like... Mean anything? (laughs) In relation to him being arrested. Yeah. It's not a good reason. No. And they were just like, ah, got him. Yeah. Quick. They were looking for an end to this case. They found some shit and they were like, arrest him. That'll do. Yeah. We'll make it fit. They found some shit, huh? Four months after. Oh, they just found it. After pleading not guilty, Thomas stood trial between the 15th of February and the 2nd of March, 1971. The Crown case against Thomas was mainly centred around the twenty-two rifle he owned and the possibility that both fatal bullets were fired from this gun, including the fact that the spent cartridge found in the garden at the crew house, labelled Exhibit 350, had undoubtedly been fired from Thomas's gun. I think they got that from the... It matched... um, It had the same amount of ridges on the side as a bullet that would have been fired from Thomas's gun. Right. Which means it undoubtedly could have been was fired from his gun. That's a bit of a stretch, but anyway. This was supported by evidence of the stub axles found on Thomas's farm and the fact that wire samples taken by the police from the farm were found to match the wire used to bind the two bodies. The Crown even tried to link Thomas to the crew house on the morning of June 19th, saying that the woman that Bruce Ruddock had seen while working on the farm that morning had been Vivian Thomas, Arthur Thomas's wife despite the witness who saw the woman and knew Vivian personally, saying that it wasn't her. The Crown posited that it had been Vivian who had fed baby Rochelle. They were also like, oh, we can't hear Bruce, can't hear him. Bruce was like, it wasn't her, I know Vivian. They said, I simply do not see. I simply do not hear. Yeah. He was like, I actually know her, it wasn't her. Anyway. They're like, someone say something? Did you hear that? That was Vivian. (laughs) I think he said it was Vivian. (laughs) This physical evidence was propped up by a somewhat tenuous, at least in my opinion, motive. The Crown proposed that Mr. Thomas was obsessively jealous of the crews. 
he had had a passion for Mrs. Crewe, which had persisted for around 20 years. Apparently, he had pestered her at local dances. Hold and had... on. 20? Sorry. Yeah. I just want to say, that would mean when she was 10. Yes. Just yep. a reminder? Yeah. Fucked. Yep. They grew up together, apparently. I'm saying it's a lot to pin on a man. Yeah. Be like, you were into this 10-year-old. Yeah. Back in the day when you were 10. That is so bold. They're being so bold. They are. Sorry, continue. Well, even maybe even bolder was that part of the the theory that they had that he was into her was that apparently he'd gone to a fortune teller to see if anything would develop of the relationship. They really said <laughs> a fortune teller. Further, it was alleged that he was jealous of the crew's comparative wealth, as many farmers in the area were struggling through a period of drought. They also alleged that it was Thomas who was responsible for two fires and a burglary which occurred at the crew house prior to the murders, which were also as a result of his jealousy. Oh my god, just piling shit on him. Yeah. They're like, how much more? They're like, guess what, these other three things? Anyone else have any other ideas? We'll just put it on top of that. I am no New Zealand evidence expert, but in here, if you want to like use evidence of a past act or past um, event, you have to have like a really good reason for wanting to use it because it's extremely prejudicial to the person. Like that looks, if they're like, oh, he did these things and it's, that means he did it. Like that makes him look really bad. So you've got to have a really good reason. Yeah. Anyway, look, I don't know about whether in New Zealand that's a thing, but this just seems so sketchy. For sure. Thomas's wife and cousin provided him with a strong alibi for the night of the 17th of June. And his legal team argued that the case built by the Crown wasn't strong enough to prove Thomas's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. We know about beyond reasonable doubt from the Bain family murders, and we know that it's a high bar. And I agree, some of this evidence is extremely shaky. I probably wouldn't expect it to stick. Despite this, the jury convicted Thomas on both counts of murder. The jury? Unconvinced. They were convinced, girl. Sorry, they were unconvinced by Thomas's team. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They said... That's good enough for me. If it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. An initial appeal to overturn the convictions on the 18th of June 1971 was dismissed by the Court of Appeal, but Thomas's supporters weren't dissuaded. They filed a petition with the Governor-General in 1971, which was considered by Sir George McGregor, a retired judge of the Supreme Court, who concluded that there was no standing for the matter to be considered by the Court of Appeal, that in his opinion there had not been a miscarriage of justice. A second petition was put to the Governor-General in June 1972, which led to the matter being referred to the Court of Appeal for what would be known as the first referral. Evidence and submissions were heard on four days between the 5th of February and the 16th of February 1973. On the 26th of February 1973, the Court of Appeal ordered a second trial. So they said, fine, quash the conviction and sent it back down to the Supreme Court for another trial. Great. Yeah. Good news for our boy, Arthur. I love the Court of Appeals. Maybe it's because they only have one job. They do it so well. Yeah. <laughs> they take appeals. They get another trial. That's what they do. <laughs> At the second trial, which began on the 26th of March, 1973, Thomas was convicted again of both murders. Oh. My. Oh my. To make it worse... There were allegations made that the jury in this trial had been housed at the same hotel as some of the police and had been communicating with them. I assure you the Court of Appeal had nothing to do with this. 
Helen's personal assurance. This is horrible. An appeal of this conviction was dismissed on the 11th of July 1973. All was not lost, however, because during the second trial, evidence was presented by Dr. Sprott, which prompted Thomas's team to question whether the spent cartridge from the garden, Exhibit 350, actually had any connection with the fatal bullets. The line of reasoning run initially was this, that the cartridge in the garden was shot from Thomas's gun and the fatal bullets were the same calibre, which means that Thomas fired the fatal bullets. Surely anyone can see that this argument is far from being watertight. So this evidence from Dr. Sprott kind of got them thinking. Where the fuck was Dr. Sprott? (laughs) Four years ago. We needed him this whole time. Where was he? Who knows. But thank you, Dr. Sprott. Yeah. Got us thinking about it. Checks out. All they're saying is, whoa, like, these two things are of the same caliber, which is, I don't know about guns, just sounds like it's the same level of... It's just the same, like, um, width. Yeah. Bro. Yeah. That is ridiculous. Yeah. That's all they were going off of? Stop it. They were trying to link the cartridge from the gun to the fatal bullets. They basically were saying, look, it's a bullet. Yeah. And it's a cartridge. Yeah. Must have been... Must be the same... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This question led to a third petition to the Governor-General, which was referred to the Court of Appeals in the second referral. The five judges of the Court of Appeal gave a unanimous judgment to the effect that Thomas had not excluded a reasonable possibility that Exhibit 350, the cartridge, contained a Pattern 8 bullet, meaning it would have matched the fatal bullets. Had excluded, had not included a -hmm. reasonable possibility. Had not not included. Had Basically... Tell me like I'm a child. Basically, when you're on appeal, the onus reverses. So you know when you get tried for something... They've got to prove that you did it. When you're appealing, you've got to prove you didn't do it. Yeah. So he didn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Exhibit 350, which was the cartridge in the garden, didn't contain a patinate bullet. They're saying you didn't do a good enough job convincing us that the bullet didn't come from your cartridge. Yes. Yes. All makes sense now. There you go. So what they're saying is that this cartridge might have contained a patinate but we don't know because we only have this cartridge that says ICI and unfortunately Thomas didn't do a good enough job convincing us otherwise. Yes. In a last ditch attempt, Thomas's team attempted to appeal this decision made by the Court of Appeal to the Privy Council, which was also in the Bain case. Yeah. However, in this case, the Privy Council said that they didn't have the scope to hear such a matter. They'd already d- they'd ticked their New Zealand box that year. <laughs> they said really we don't sorry. need another one. It's filled. The slot is filled for the year. Yeah. If you don't know much about guns and bullets like me, I did a little bit of looking into it for this. And basically, when you shoot a rifle, the bullet is released from the cartridge, and then the bullet travels down the barrel before it's ejected from the gun. The cartridge stays in the gun at the at the end where you've loaded it in, and that's when you see people go, and the, it goes, and the cartridge yeah. pops out the top. And then you put another round hmm. in the gun, which is the bullet in the cartridge. Yeah. Yeah. It could also come out the bottom. could also come out the bottom. That's when he does the... I'm talking about in John Wick. In he John does, Wick. He flicks the gun and the, that yeah, thing that flies out. It's the yeah. cartridge. Yes. The empty cartridge. Yeah. Yeah. I also wanted to say that um, for some reason in my head, the Court of Appeals 
um, all five judges, they're like owls. Okay, yeah. That does make, they, yeah. <laughs> like, I see that. Birds. <laughs> they sit there like, with yes. glasses. Yeah. And they're like, who? Who is this appealing today? <laughs> Why, where do I get this idea from? Is there a court of owls somewhere You're else? You're a visual learner. Sorry, anyway. All hope, however, was not lost. British author Mr. Yallop wrote a book which stated his belief in Thomas's innocence and the serious miscarriage of justice involved in his conviction. I love how these random characters keep popping up with the strangest names. Yeah. Sprott, Yallop. Mr. Chitty. Mr. Chitty. And they all, like, roll it forward. Yeah. Like, they don't just pop up and say something. They pop up and then, like, drastically Make shit happen. change the narrative exactly. of this case. These allegations prompted the Prime Minister, Robert Muldoon, to appoint Robert Adam Smith, QC. What's that? We've talked about this before. Sorry. Remember the Queen's Council? Oh. Yeah. To write a report on the allegations made in the book. Mr. Adam Smith went above and beyond, creating two reports, one in January and one in December of 1979. As a result of this, the Prime Minister granted Thomas a free pardon at the end of 1979, pursuant to Section 407 of the Crimes Act 1961. What's that section? It says you can get a pardon. <laughs> Look, I personally don't have the Crimes Act <laughs> on lock. It whips it out. <laughs> Yeah, okay, I'll take that. This was nine years after he was initially placed in custody after his 1970 arrest. Thomas was awarded over $1 million in compensation for his wrongful imprisonment. Only $1 million for being in jail for nine years. I guess it was 1979, but still, I'd want a little bit more than that. Hmm, it's true. It's like something you really can't compensate for, is it? Yeah, you really can't. Shortly afterwards, a royal commission was set up to investigate the circumstances of his convictions, led by a retired Chief Justice, Robert Taylor, from the New South Wales Court of Appeal, where mm. they have Australian owls. Australian owls. Kookaburras. Kookaburras. <laughs> Cute. You guys love getting our old justices to come over and fix up your shit. Clearly no? we can't do a good enough job. <laughs> yeah. We haven't even done an Australian case with a wrongful conviction. Maybe we'll, maybe I'll find one Please. for you, so you feel a bit better. <laughs> Getting attacked. The Royal Commission, which began in 1980, considered evidence about four main factors. The motive, the gun, the wire, and the axle. Firstly, the review considered the evidence submitted to develop the motive was largely unjustified. The Commission stated that the prosecution evidence suggested nothing more than that Mr Thomas had been romantically interested in Jeanette at one stage, and that he had been through a degree of financial difficulty in 1970, as had many dairy farmers in the area at that time. As for the arson and burglary allegations, the commission said that the prosecution had failed to adequately link these to Thomas, and that the only conclusion that can be made is the fact that they occurred at all. Thank you. Thank you, Justice Taylor. He like said it back then, and he's vindicated me. <laughs> He just took one look at the first page of the thing. He was like, what the fuck? Yeah. He was like, oh, God, I've got my work cut out for me. <sighs> the committee considered a number of theories advanced by the police to explain the presence of the cartridge, Exhibit 350, in the garden, all of which were excluded by the committee. The first was that the gun was fired through an open louver window and the cartridge was ejected outside. The commission concluded that this theory was not realistic. June 17th was a cold, wet and windy evening. 
suggest that the window would have been open and Harvey sitting within a few feet is not likely. Even if the window was slightly opened, so that the murderer could have pried it open further, this would have created a draft which Harvey would have noticed. The second theory, even less likely, was that the murderer threw the shell out the window. There were three reasons which made this unlikely. Firstly, shells are very light. It would have been hard for it to travel the distance and land where it did in the garden. Also, if you're, if a louver window is what you're saying it is, mm-hmm. it's not an open window. It's slanted pieces of glass. Is unless they saying? were like, unless they were fully horizontal. Right. Unless it was like that, like it was fully open and yeah. on June seventeenth when it was freezing cold. Strange. Yeah. Secondly, two shots were fired, but only one shell was found. And thirdly, other evidence indicate the murders were carried out by someone careful and intelligent, and such a person would not leave telltale evidence at the scene. The third theory is the cold shell theory, that the murderer ejected the shell into the garden as he reloaded the rifle upon approaching the house. There are two reasons why this isn't the case. Firstly, because the noise created by reloading a rifle is loud, and a careful and intelligent murderer would not risk being heard so close to the house. The second reason is that the cartridge contained a Category 4 head stamp, while the bullets which killed Harvey and Jeanette were a Category 3. Therefore, it could not have contained the fatal bullets, and was also manufactured at a different time. It's unlikely that a rifle would be loaded consecutively with two shells, which were so different that they were acquired at different times and came from different packets. This then poses the question, was the cartridge planted at the scene? The cartridge was found 18 weeks after the murder took place, but it didn't display any signs of corrosion. Simulations in which similar cases were left at the crew farm for 18 weeks displayed significant levels of corrosion. Further, the case was not found during the June 22nd search or an August 18 sieve search of the garden. It would have been found had it been there. There were also inconsistencies in other evidence which was presented at the trial, including expert evidence about a bullet which was obtained from the Thomas farm for testing, known as Exhibit 343. This bullet was taken from Thomas to be fired at the police station in order to determine whether it matched the cartridge or the fatal bullets. At the second trial, evidence from Dr. Sprott indicated that the cartridge was a Category 4 and that the bullet from the farm was a Category 3. The effect of such was that there was no connection between the two and that the cartridge did not correspond with the fatal bullets either. Dr. Sprott also noted that the bullet labelled Exhibit 343 was unfired, but the notes from the exhibit indicate that it had been fired at the police station to remove the case, so these weren't the same bullets. After an adjournment, a different expert, Dr. Nelson, examined the bullets and said that both the cartridge and the bullet were Category 4, linking them and therefore linking Thomas to the murder scene. The commission ended up accepting that both of these doctors were correct, so what they were faced with was three different bullets being presented as Exhibit 343 over the course of the investigation and trial. They concluded that after the initial bullet had been fired at Otohuhu Police Station, it had been accidentally substituted for an unfired bullet at some point between the 21st of October 1970 and April 12, 1973. However, they concluded that the second substitution, which led to the differences in evidence presented by Dr. Sprott and Dr. Nelson, had been deliberate. Mr. Hutton had deliberately substituted the Category 3 bullet, which didn't match the cartridge, with a Category 4 bullet, 
which would have been more consistent with the Crown's theory of events. He did this between Dr Sprott's examination on the 12th of April 1973 and Dr Nelson's examination on the 13th of April 1973. These two points of the review basically discredit the bullet evidence in the way that it was used against Thomas. What a nice way to put it. Accidentally substituted. Mm, the about, first um, one. What about mishandled? Oh. What about... The language. What the fuck? You're right. As if. Yeah. And yeah. then I want to know, like, did they even think about what was Mr. Bruce, Mr. Bruce Hutton mm. doing? Why was he so set on condemning Thomas? I think he was set on condemning someone. Yeah, clearly, because he was previously set on condemning them. I think he just wanted it dealt with. As for the wire evidence, samples of wire were collected from only nine farms in the area. The commission concluded that such a limited sample cannot be said to be helpful in establishing anything. There was also differing expert evidence, with one saying that it can't be said to come from the Thomas farm, and the other saying that it might be similar. In any case, it is not possible to draw any inference which would connect Mr Thomas with the wire on the bodies. There is no evidence putting the wire in his hands. Finally, the axle which was recovered from the river with Harvey's body did match the stub axles found on the Thomas farm. The commission stated that police were justified in inferring that the axle had come from a trailer owned by Mr Thomas in previous years, but that there was not enough evidence to prove that Thomas knew of its existence or even had the axle in his physical possession. Fair enough. Yeah. He lives on a farm. Exactly. He must have so much shit everywhere. Exactly. So there are some pretty big claims being made here. Possible evidence tampering. It wasn't until 2014 when these claims were properly reviewed by police, long after most of the investigating officers had passed away. The crew review was conducted by Detective Superintendent Andy Lovelock, who stated that, quote, There is a distinct possibility that a rifle cartridge found at the scene may be fabricated evidence, and that if this is the case, that a member of police would have been responsible. They're just realising this in 2014. Yeah, they're just admitting it. You'd think like the moment they found something, four months after the initial crime, someone would have been like, hmm. Is that suspicious? A shiny new mm. bullet. Oh, mm. sorry, cartridge. And they're like, okay, yeah, cool. Put it in the put it in the um, evidence locker. Maybe it was similar to when a few of the junior officers in the Agnes case were like, this isn't right. But then, like, the obviously the senior guys were like, shh, shh. Right. And then just nothing mm. got done about it. Mm. You know, like, look, I'm not here to say all cops are bad, really. But especially back in the day, something does have to be said for the whole, like, brotherhood, like, you know, you protect each other even if it's the wrong thing to do kind of attitude. Okay. But the court and the lawyers are unrelated. To the police? Yeah. The prosecution work with the police. But the court is is neutral. Well, <laughs> in theory, the court is neutral. What I'm saying The jury is, is apparently able to be led astray. Objectively, it seems like this was always shit evidence. Yeah. Maybe we have the luck of hindsight. Mm. But... That's true. A cartridge found four months after three searches. Yeah. Just objectively doesn't sound... If I was a juror, I'd be like... What? Surely it would raise some eyebrows. I don't know. Not, not enough, apparently. Yeah, apparently. For the first four months of the investigation, 
Detective Inspector Bruce Hutton, our main man, after he's, everyone. He's our main man, but he's not our G. At no. All. Had been pursuing Jeanette's father to no avail. He was desperate to provide a positive outcome, and he needed a link to Thomas's rifle, so he at least supervised the planting of a bullet, which, at least so he thought, would look like it had been fired from Thomas's gun. The report also highlighted some criticisms of how the case was handled in the initial investigation, saying that, quote, Hutton's decision to call on Leonard Demler to visually identify the bodies of both his daughter and son-in-law after prolonged immersion in water lacked sensitivity and represents an unacceptable practice. Demler was prime suspect when the bodies were recovered, and Hutton's actions, quote, may have been calculated to evoke some sort of admission. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds about right. He thought if he showed them the bodies, he'd, like, he'd have some kind of yeah. guilty conscience moment and admit it. <gasps> Bold. Yeah. Very brazen. Very. That is a testament. He's just doing whatever the fuck this he wants. This guy clearly is brazen because he fully just replaced evidence during a trial. Yeah. Not why. Who was watching no one, it? Is he dead at this point? They're doing this report? Yeah. He got away with it. <laughs> he did. And you know what? Detective Superintendent Andy Lovelock, who supervised the report... He, like, spoke at um, Hutton's funeral oh. and was like, he was a great police <gasps> officer and, like, said all these nice things. And then when this report came out, he was like, I regret doing that. The report concluded that while his general persona and his ill will towards Jeanette pointed to him as a suspect, that focusing solely on him, quote, significantly and negatively impacted the breadth of the investigation and led to a loss of objectivity on the part of the 1970 investigation team, specifically Hutton. While recognising the parts of the investigation that were done correctly, the report conceded that police had dropped the ball in a number of areas, including failing to corroborate some alibis, following up on vehicle sightings, securing crime scene exhibits and evidence, and investigating people of interest connected to the Thomas farm. The report concluded by saying that while there is, quote, significant physical evidence linking the Thomas farm with the murder, police are unable to advance the investigation without new evidence. Thomas's barrister, Peter Williams QC, condemned this outcome, saying that this comment was, quote, a little bit nasty, and that, quote, Thomas spent nine years in prison. The very least the police could do is commiserate. He was an innocent man. Lovelock told the Weekend Herald that, quote, whilst the file is not closed, there is no active work being done on the file at the current point in time. On release of the review report in July 2014, police said that we were open to any significant and credible new information, and this position remains unchanged. To date, no such information has been brought to the attention of the police. As it stands, there are 25 unidentified fingerprints at the scene, which means the offender wasn't on the system and hasn't been fingerprinted since. That's crazy to me. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. 25 of the same, or 25. I'm not 100% sure on the breakdown. Right. But there's like 25 fingerprints that aren't Harvey's or Jeanette's and aren't Demler's or Thomas's, I'm assuming, because they would have both been fingerprinted. Maybe not Demler. Mm, because they kind of ridded him pretty early. Mm. But then, oh, I see what you're saying. What am I saying? Then it was Demler. Oh, yes. Uh. <laughs> I was like, what did I, I made a breakthrough? <laughs> what was it? <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> well, I'm saying, yeah, I, I'm just wondering if he didn't get to, like, if he wasn't charged, 
Mm, maybe maybe he never ha- got fingerprinted. Exactly. You're right. Their daughter, Rochelle, who is now 52, was a driving force in prompting the review into the handling of the investigation and was hoping to get more answers about who had killed her parents. Natalie Walker, Rochelle Cruz's lawyer, said her client was disappointed not to know who killed her parents. She is, however, grateful to know that her aunt and her grandparents were not involved in any way. Mm. I guess she knows it wasn't Demler. Okay. I guess the report said it wasn't, the review must have said it wasn't them. Mm. And that they don't know who it is. Her lawyer also said, quote, Rochelle is disappointed there were shortfalls. But Rochelle also expressed gratitude for police acknowledging that they fell short. Arthur Thomas is now 82 and still kicking. He is still kicking. He has never received an apology from the police, which... A bit rude. And also, like, New Zealand's too small for that to be happening, you know? Yeah. They don't have that much what if, else to be doing. What if they run into him? It could be awkward <laughs> at, at the shops. Exactly. Like that time he ran into Lord. <laughs> yeah, Woolworths. <laughs> oh, we don't have that in New Zealand. Countdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one. In 2009, Arthur Thomas travelled to Christchurch to support David Bain during his retrial, which resulted in his acquittal. Kind of cute. That is kind of nice, Also, crossover. Yeah, crossover. (laughs) They said he was there and he tipped his hat. He said, I see you, good sir. Yeah. However, in 2019, he faced one charge of rape and four of indecent assault against two women. On the 15th of December 2020, at Papakura District Court, Thomas's lawyers asked that the charges be dismissed. Argument details from this hearing were suppressed in the interest of a fair trial. No outcome on whether this will proceed yet. And... It was only a couple months ago. It's true. God. I know. Arthur, you nearly made it. Arthur. But you know what? It's just charges ruse. That's right. Innocent until proven guilty. There we go. And, um... We'll keep an eye on that one, though. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. See what happens. Yeah. I want to bring our attention back to the start of the episode where the investigation the investigation was described as being, quote, intense, thorough, and painstaking. Let me remind you, took two months to find Jeanette's body, another month after that to find Harvey's, four months to find the cartridge, if they even found it, and literally, like, tens of twenties of years for anything to be looked at twice, so... Yeah, cool. Maybe the start of it was intense, thorough, and painstaking. Maybe the initial crime scene analysis was done really well, and then nothing turned up, and they were like, oh, fuck. I think, and just turned to the the worst parts of policing. I think Hutton yeah. was projecting here. Oh. <laughs> I think internally he was finding it very intense and painstaking. And he was like, this investigation is so... But he's like, oh, God, I can't believe I have to actually work. I have to find a murderer. <laughs> the scientist is not what I signed up for in New Zealand. Yeah, you're right. Maybe he was projecting. He was like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> We're being so thorough. Yeah. Anyway. Whack. Crazy. Maybe we'll never know. Maybe this is one of these things we'll never know. Yeah. I th- Yeah. I reckon it, it's probably slim. I think it's slim as well. Mm. Also, we have all this um, rah-rah-rah, you could say, about Leonard Demler. He's been dead for like 20 years. Yeah. 30, sorry. He died in 92. Oh my god, that's nearly 30 years. We are so far beyond convicting Leonard Demler, unless we can sentence him to 800 life sentences in the afterlife. Posthumously. That's what they do anyway. Hey? Yeah, apparently. 
So, yeah. Maybe he's already been sentenced. Oh, by you the big man. I mean? <laughs> we got to mention the big man every episode. For one of the most, for one of the least religious people I know, me, I really talk about the big man. The big man. You, really, you hope there's a like a judicial big man. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. If I had a religion, it's the judicial <laughs> judicial god. Fair enough. I'm sure he's dealt with it up there. Like everyone related to this case in that time is basically dead, except um Thomas. Arthur Thomas is still alive, and Rochelle is still alive. Yeah, maybe it's something about innocence. Ooh, okay. The good karma the of good the universe. Karma. All right. Maybe he gets an extended nine years. I'll buy it. Wow. Oh, he gets an extra on it's the actually end. Actually, I Buddha. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> Just a thought. A Todd. Yeah, nice. Obviously, we don't know if he, you know, yeah. la 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 la, all that. But, you know, in the case, that'd be a nice thought. It's fun to think about. Mm. Mm. Anyway, hope you guys like this case. Mm. Next week, we're coming to you with a bit more of a funner one. Funky tune. A funky tune, as, you, as Jane would say. Yeah. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. It's about art. It's about art. Helen's favorite topic. I love art. <laughs> so, like an like a heist. Mmm. Some oceans energy. Yeah, yeah. We should watch a heist movie in preparation. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. Okay. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.